Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Tonight's show is on Mussolini and fascist Italy, looking at Mussolini in myth and memory, and then at life in fascist Italy through the eyes of his favourite daughter. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we found out about the Great Irish Famine in Dublin, how it was affected compared to the rest of the country and the long-term legacy. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Mussolini in myth and memory. Mussolini has rarely been taken seriously as a totalitarian dictator. Hitler and Stalin have always cast too long a shadow. Present-day popular memory of Mussolini is increasingly indulgent. In Italy and elsewhere, he is remembered as a strong, decisive leader, and people now speak of the many good things done by the regime. And all of this is explored in a brilliant new book, Mussolini in Myth and Memory, The First Totalitarian Dictator. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Paul Corner. And Paul, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. It's a fascinating study, and I think what's really interesting is the way you explore that myth and that memory because this isn't your standard biography Benito Mussolini born 1883 instead you're exploring how he's remembered and the various different clouding of the Mussolini story Absolutely yes the the Mussolini story now is very different from the Mussolini story that I would want to uh, tell as a historian in popular memory Mussolini as you say is now remembered by many people as a strong as a strong leader Uh, somebody who got things done. And in a way, that contrast with Hitler and Stalin puts Mussolini in a good light, that they're seen as the terrible dictators and Mussolini was maybe not as bad. You have a chapter on exploding the myth of good-natured fascism, that you have to explore what that idea is and then you have to kind of dismantle it piece by piece. Yes, exactly, yes. I think, um, well, to begin with, I think... Uh, the idea that Mussolini is not so bad has to be um, has to be questioned in some way. Uh, I, I think you have to remember that Mussolini is responsible for the death of about half a million Italians. Uh, Italians strangely don't seem to remember this. Uh, if you add add the uh, colonial dead uh, and other dead, you can probably arrive at a million people dead as a result of Italian fascism. Um, so uh, lesser evil, yes, but the problem with lesser evil is that um, people have used this argument to say he's not so bad, and then there's been a gradual slippage uh, to say, well, he wasn't so bad, he really did so many good things, uh, and in the end you get this indulgent idea of uh, Mussolini, which reflects, I think this is an important point, reflects very much the propaganda that that 
fascism uh, invented for itself. It's the self-image of fascism as a, as a regime that gets things done, uh, which has been perpetuated uh, and which is remembered now uh, by many people. Uh, what the book tries to do, what my book tries to do, is to show that this is a this is a myth that fascism didn't get uh, a lot of good things done, and the things that it it might have done well, it actually did badly. Uh, this is the message I've uh, tried to communicate in the book. And that idea of a mass consensus about what Mussolini and that fascist regime represented, is that because it is too it is too upsetting for Italian people to have to confront the reality of that regime? Yes, yes. There's a strange kind of logic, which is we Italians are good people. If, as historians, one historian in particular, Enzo De Felice, says there was a mass consensus for fascism among Italians, then logically it's it, it means that fascism cannot have been uh, so bad because good people would not have supported uh, a, a bad regime. So there is this, yes, there's this comforting element that, uh, that yes, it was, we were all fascists, but it doesn't matter because uh, fascism was not so bad. It was a violent regime. It was a highly repressive regime. Was it a violent, repressive regime that also had some good elements or are even those good elements mythologised as well and that really it was inefficient and it's just, it's just the propaganda that projects a different image? I think there are very few good elements. I find it difficult to think of any. Um, one aspect of the regime with which I don't talk about very much is that of corruption uh, fascism comes to power promising to um, wipe out uh, corruption and in fact becomes a far more corrupt re- regime than the regimes which than the uh, governments which went before it um, the, and this permeates the whole operation of the fascist uh, of the fascist regime the fact that it's a network of corrupt relationships uh, and this effectively prevents very much uh, being done, which is which is um, which is uh, positive. Of course, there are certain things. I mean, we can point to a certain reorganisation of the e- economy in the 1930s with state holding companies and central bank reforms and uh, and things like this. Um, one of the problems here is that when you're identifying many of these points, these are points which any government would have done in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, again, we go back to the image which fascism sold of itself, because anything that was done in the 1920s and the 1930s gets the label fascist. This is what the fascists did. Um, and I think uh, it, it's, this, is, this is part of the, the, the way in which propaganda is still permeating. There was more land reclaimed uh, under, under governments before fascism than under fascism. But we hear always that fascism reclaimed lands, reclaimed the Pontine marshes, and it has the label fascist uh, to it, uh, which gives the impression that it's a good thing. And I think this is, a, this is a, an illusion. Um, history would not have stood still in Italy in the 1920s and the 1930s if, it had had, if Italy had had a liberal regime. It would have done many of the same things, but they wouldn't have had these, these, these good things wouldn't have had the label fascist attached to them. 
I'm interested in your subtitle, The First Totalitarian Dictator, because there seems to be different elements to that. There's the there is the immediate influence on 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 other dictators, on people like Hitler and Mussolini provides a handbook and an inspiration. But then there's the longer legacy as well in terms of strong leadership and how that's presented and the normalization of fascism. I mean, you have to remember that the word totalitarian is invented in Italy. It's actually invented by one of Mussolini's opponents. Uh, Mussolini likes the word and then takes it on board and is happy to call his regime a totalitarian regime. I think there's a radicalization as you go forward in the regime. It's a radicalization which faces severe problems, of course, because the the fascist regime has two faces. One is, one is what they would call a revolutionary face, which is to, to change things radically in Italy. And the other is a very conservative face, which means that it present, it, if fascism defends the interests of established classes and of industrialists and the, the large landowners. And one of the problems is you can't be radical and you can't please both, uh, both groups. You can't be radical without upsetting the people who are basically your backbone uh, as, a, as a regime which defends certain groups inter- and, and certain interests. Uh, so there's, there's actually very little normalization in this sense, uh, um, except to say that the party is kept abs- under control. Here's a big difference with Nazi Germany, I think, that the, the fascist party is kept under control by Mussolini. It, he doesn't allow the party to affect this radicalization which many people in the party would want, would want to I was thinking more of the the 100 years since in terms of how some of these ideas are presented because it's interesting the way you reference people like Donald Trump in the introduction, Ceausescu is discussed, that there really is this long legacy of of strong leaders who pretty much follow some elements of the the rule book that was was pioneered by Mussolini. Uh, Yes, I was interested to, um, when I started... Uh, working on this business of nostalgia for Mussolini, of looking at other dictators and finding that the same thing uh, is, is happening with with other dictators, Hitler being the, the, the big exception, of course, because of the Holocaust kind of acceptance. This kind of government is, um, is acceptable. Um, it's obviously one of the big problems today. What is very evidently uh, a crisis of many democratic regimes begin with uh, the United States. So yes, I mean, there is a kind of blueprint which was established. Mussolini was very important, I think, in this sense. Why people accept this, I think you have to go to present-day problems. Uh, people are looking for a resort for some kind of government which will rescue from current crises which seem to be insoluble by present political systems. And finally then, I just wonder when you look at the final years, the final days of Mussolini, how would you see his leadership during that period? Because again, there's maybe an image that he's the sidekick of Hitler, not really respected or, or, or valued and and that he very much suffers. He's seen as maybe almost like a, something of a joke in those final years, having to be rescued, finally, you know, then being executed. Uh, it's 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 a very ignominious end for the the world's first totalitarian dictator. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yes, he's portrayed as a as, as a sad victim. Um, sometimes people even feel sorry for him in that period. 
Uh, it's clear that he doesn't have a great deal of power. It's also clear that he wants to hang on to whatever power he can hang on to. Uh, I have very little sympathy for him in this period. Uh, he leads Italy into a civil war, which is an absolute disaster. And uh, he knows what he's doing. It's very clear that uh, the, the civil war will be the result of his actions. So I, I, I think this, victim, this idea that he's a pathetic victim of Hitler at this time is mistaken. There were alternatives he could have taken and he didn't take. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk about Mussolini in Myth and Memory. The book is subtitled The First Totalitarian Dictator. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Paul Corner. And Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Edda Mussolini was Benito Mussolini's favourite daughter and from her early 20s she was effectively First Lady of Italy and a new book on her life explores fascist Italy with all its glamour, decadence and political intrigue as well as the turbulence before its violent end. The book is called Edda Mussolini, The Most Dangerous Woman in Europe. It's published in hardback by Chattison Windus. The author is Caroline Moorhead and Caroline, very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Edda had this extraordinary career. It was only in 1995 that she died. But in a way, the last 50 years of her life was almost like an epilogue because it, in a way, all the, all the significant dramatic stuff happens before that and it was dealing with the impact and the legacy of that in the final years. Yes, entirely. I mean, I decided to stop the book really in 1949 when she was only 39 and she went back to Rome. But really from then until she died, she had... She had a lonely and quiet life. She didn't marry again. She um, drank a bit too much. She traveled. She saw a few friends. She was shunned by quite a lot of people. Um, so the really, it is, her life is in two parts. She had this tremendously dramatic first part, ending with this great tragic ending of both her father and her husband. And after that, it sort of faded away. Now, we've been talking about Mussolini and myth and memory, and you very much see the myths and the memories when it comes to her story and connected to her father's story, because she's been very much, as you say in the introduction, distorted, romanticised, um, and very much rewritten to suit different agendas and uh, in the years after her life. Yes, this is absolutely true. I think it stems partly from the fact that there was this great cult of Mussolini, and by definition of the fa- of the family, uh, the cult started out really very early on when he became dictator, and it took the form of pictures and stamps and mugs and posters, and he embarked on a huge building spree. So there was a great deal of fascist architecture all over Italy, and her in particular because she was his favourite daughter, and she. Um, and she she really took her mother's part in becoming the first lady of Italy. And the cult, in a sort of curious sort of way, persisted after, because to this day in Predapia, which is where she was born and where the, all the Mussolinis were born, there is this museum, this sort of shrine to the Mussolinis. And every year on the 28th of October, which is the um, 100th anniversary this year of the birth of fascism, there are parades and there are meetings and there are speeches and People walk up and down with their arms raised for the fashion salute. So in a sense, the cult that began 100 years ago is still there. You describe her in the book as Mussolini's favourite child, but also fascism's most exotic star. 
And tell us about her early life, because she was born in 1910. But I suppose in those early years, up until her father taking taking power, she was the the daughter of a of a journalist and editor. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of money, and you know, her life changed very dramatically in 1922. Yes, that's absolutely right. No, there was no money at all when she was a child. They were really, really poor. Um, Mussolini was a journalist, um, scraped by on what he could. Um, Raquel, his wife, did not work. She looked after the children. Um, Edda went to school, but was not really very much educated. She was very wild. She was known, her nickname was uh, was the Little Mad Horse. Um, she led a little gang of kids in Milan when they lived there. She was sent for a year to a posh boarding school, which she hated, and where she behaved extremely badly to the nuns. Uh, and was very rude to everybody, and she hated it. She hated the, it all being so proper and grand. So you find her at the age of 17, which is when she comes to Rome for the first time, and her father has been in power for five years. You find her sort of feral, um, but quite quickly, because of all the attention she gets, she becomes quite sort of starry and quite self-possessed um, in a very surprisingly rapid manner. She becomes quite sedate, though while inside she remains quite wild. And what was her role in, I suppose, let's look at the 1920s first of all. What was her role in that new fascist state? Because, as you say, she uh, she, she played that important role in terms of uh, taking over from her mother. That uh, How wild was she? How influential was she? And, you know, that intriguing subtitle of the book, The Most Dangerous Woman in Europe, just how dangerous was she? Just how influential was she? Well, it's that odd line between influence and power. Um, I didn't make the, the subtitle up. It was a, it was a quote from a newspaper. Um, in the 20s, you have to remember she was still quite young. She went to Shanghai um, as her new husband's wife, who became, he became consul general in Shanghai. She went off and she was 19 and she went off to Shanghai where she had a wonderful time because Shanghai was everything that provincial state Rome was not. It was lively and fun and exotic. So when she comes back, which is in 1932, she is then 22, she discovers that Mussolini, her father, needs really a hostess, needs a, a fascist a, a fascist presence by his side. And Raquelia, her mother, is a tremendous homebody. I mean, what she likes to do is to look after her chickens and her rabbits. And she doesn't want to go anywhere, and she ne- they never have guests. So Edda then becomes the sort of pin-up girl of fascism. And one of the problems in Rome was Rome was full of these very staid, grand, aristocratic Roman families. And they had to, in some way, come to terms with fascism. And Edda and her husband, Chano, who then became foreign minister, were the sort of interface between the two. And there were, there were very few fascist women who entered Roman society. But of course, Edda did, and she was courted everywhere. She didn't really like society. But, you know, she was this ambiguous figure. She, she liked being courted. You know, she was treated as a sort of goddess during the 30s. At one point, she told a journalist, this is in later years, that 
her father was the only man she had ever loved. So I wonder what does that say about the marriage? Because as you show it, it was quite turbulent. Uh, there, there definitely seems to have been uh, affairs and infidelities on both sides. That uh, he seems to have been a, a complete womanizer. That uh, how strong was that relationship, and and what did it mean in terms of again her her role, given that he was the foreign minister at, at this crucial period. I think that is all part of the great tragedy of her life. Indeed, she loved her father, I'm sure, best. And, and that very poignant remark was made to a, to a television um, reporter many, many years later that the only man she really loved was her father. However, when she married Charno, I think it was a pretty loveless marriage. She needed to get married. She was too wild. Everybody wanted her married. Um, she wanted to get out of, out of home. Um, she quite quickly discovered that Charno was going to have affairs and she had affairs. And it was a pretty cool, calculating marriage right up until 1939-40, which is when, in a way, politically, she and her husband Charno went slightly separate ways. She increasingly promoted union with Germany and he was increasingly wary of Germany and wanted to stick by the Allies. Um... When the real change came was when Picciano became one of the plotters against Mussolini and was eventually arrested and put on trial. And at this point, something seems to have happened to their relationship and suddenly to her feelings for him. It was almost as if she suddenly fell in love with him and she was absolutely determined to try to save his life. And the last couple of months, were incredibly poignant. I mean, they exchanged these letters, which for the first time were really, they really were love letters. And when she failed to save him, it was the great tragedy of her life. You mentioned there the the attraction that she had for Nazi Germany and certainly the, the leading figures in Nazi Germany seem to have hugely admired her, at least in the in the 1930s. What was the attraction there? Because it definitely seemed to have a dark influence over her and, and seemed to have a dark attraction for her. When she was 25, she was sent off by her father as a sort of unofficial emissary um, because... Mussolini wanted to test the waters to see what Britain would do if he invaded Abyssinia. And she did quite well. She talked to MacDonald. She took took soundings, if you like, and went back to Italy and said to him, don't worry, they were too much. And indeed, she was right. The following year, he sent her to Germany, where she was hugely courted. Um, Himmler gave a party for her. Um, Goebbels and his wife entertained her. She went up on a boat with Hitler. Everywhere she went, she was much fated. And while she was there, her husband, Charno, back in Rome, was appointed foreign minister. And after that, it was like a sort of very grand state visit. So she went back to, to Italy, very charmed by the Germans. And at least in this initial phase, between about uh, sort of 36, and 42, she was very pro-German. And what was it like living in fascist Italy in this period? Because in a way, herself and her husband were able to act almost like as a bridge between the older, uh, the older aristocracy who had ruled Italy and then these new fascists who were in control. Um, I'm very glad you asked me that question because partly why I wanted to write about it was I wanted to try and write 
a book about what it was like to be in Italy during the fascist years, because they were so they were so total. I mean, totalitarianism was was what it was about. Mussolini imposed a sort of total fascist regime on Italy, which had both its good and its bad. I mean, its good side was that he built roads, drained marshes, set up programs for mothers and babies, improved health, improved schooling. All those things were good. At the same time, he laid down prescriptions for how everybody was going to live. Um, people had their uniforms. They had to go to um, sports on at weekends. The children had to wear their little uniforms and belong to the little fascist organizations. All boys and girls were in fascist organizations. Um, they did a great deal of sport. Um, women were told what to wear, what to cook, how to live, how to stay at home and produce children. Um, lots of jobs were close to them. Now, what was so interesting about Edda and Charno is that they didn't really think the rules belonged to, applied to them. Um, for instance, women were not meant to wear trousers, um, Edda wore trousers. Uh, they weren't meant to smoke. Edda smoked like a chimney. Um, Mussolini frowned on dancing. Edda was mad about dancing. It was somehow as if none of these rules applied to them. And at the same time, Mussolini kind of needed her and Charno because he needed a sort of glamorous face to, to, to fascism. And they were very glamorous. Edda was not beautiful, and she wasn't even pretty, but she was very, very striking-looking. She was thin, she was elegant, she wore clothes very well. Charno was sleek, beautifully dressed. Uh, and everywhere they went, they were this, this glamour couple. So they were both hugely frowned on, and also admired. But what is interesting is that as the 30s go on, more and more uh, letters pour into Mussolini saying you should be curbing the excesses of your wild daughter and what is your son-in-law up to. Because one of the fascinating things about writing about fascism is the archives, because there is this enormous fascist archive in Rome. And there you have the reports of all the spies of whom there were many you have all the impressions of what is going on during fascism. So as much as anything, I wanted this book to be a sort of picture of this astonishing life. And to what extent do you think that she was an enabler of the fascist regime, of her father's regime? Uh, because she was this glamorous figurehead. She was this celebrity that it, it, was she in a way making, making a, lot of this, a lot of these things respectable? Yes, in a way she was. Um, I mean, I think he was, he was always a bit nervous that she was going to go too far and she would be, you know, she would be spotted doing too many things. Of course, nobody ever reported on the bad things she did, like have affairs, which she did. Um, she was followed everywhere by photographers. So there was a great deal of coverage of her. Um, I think that when she she went and opened things, she went with her father to ceremonies. I mean, fascism, the other side of it was all this ceremonial. There were endless festas and marches and openings and prizes and exhibitions. Um, fascism was constantly being being admired and portrayed and extolled. And she played her part in all that. 
And when you talk about the excesses, how bad did it get? You've mentioned the affairs. I think she, certainly when she was in China, she was drinking a lot of gin. And uh, there was, was that a reflection of an unhappiness or was it just that she was wild and, uh, and liked to live her own life? I think it was mostly she was wild and liked to live her own life. I think in public um, during the 30s, I think she was quite careful. She was, after all, the wife of the foreign minister. Um, and I think she was relatively careful then. Um, certainly, later on, she wasn't. When she was when she was sort of a virtual prisoner in Switzerland, she again behaved very badly. But I think during those thirties, the thirties, when she was sort of so much on display, I think she curbed all that. You describe her in the book as clever and enigmatic, and she certainly was enigmatic, but I, I wonder about the cleverness. At times she seems very clever, but at times she seems to be just making, you know, silly mistakes or being blinded by glamour or a, or a, or a mystique that, you know, perhaps she should have seen through. I think that's absolutely right. I think she was very shrewd and she learnt quickly. I think she suffered from the fact she'd never been educated. Um, she wasn't much of a reader. I mean, she read mainly magazines. Um, was she a political thinker? No, she certainly wasn't. But she was shrewd. I think she was useful to Mussolini because she was very, very shrewd about the people around him. And he definitely confided in her and listened to her, listened to her opinion. And since she did have fairly strong opinions, particularly on the people who surrounded him. Um, I think that's where some of her influence lay. I think she was a good reader of situations. But then, of course, you're absolutely right. She could make very stupid blunders, like she totally misread Germany and later came to regret it. But, But at the time, she really did misread Germany. How sexist was fascist Italy? Was there any respect for women or were they very much seen as subordinate? Women were totally subordinate. Um, just before Mussolini came to power, um, Italian feminists had made great strides, and uh, you know they were moving them well-educated, getting good jobs, and so on. Um, Mussolini started by saying that he would give women the vote, but then, of course, didn't. The women didn't get the vote until after the war, the Second World War. Um, women were not allowed to do a lot of jobs. The great thing for women was that they had to produce uh, little soldiers. They had to be wives and mothers. And there was an enormous amount of fascist propaganda, fascist literature, much encouraged by fascist women's magazines about how women were to stay home, look after the children, be helpful to their husbands, be there when they came back in the evening from work. It was a great narrative about the role of women as mothers, particularly mothers of sons because Mussolini was very keen to to push up the Italian population, which was relatively small at the beginning of his reign. And as it went on and we moved more into wars, he wanted little soldiers. So there was this great emphasis on women at home. And you also get a great insight into the book, into just how authoritarian the state was and how much control was being exerted by the state and, and how they were all caught up in that. A lot of this was to do, due to the, the spying system. Now, under Mussolini, uh, there was this police chief called Bocchini, and he saw his job twofold. One was to protect Mussolini because there were four attempts of his, on his life in 19, 
26. And the other was to take the temperature of Italy, which is how he put it. And to this end, there were armies of spies. That's to say, ordinary people became spies. Now, they became spies because they were given something, because something they'd done was overlooked, because a favor was granted to them, because they got up the ladder on housing and so on. So you find spies everywhere. You find them in the Vatican. You find them in schools and offices and the streets. And, of course, you find them in porters, in blocks of flats and, and drivers and servants. And all these spies had numbers, but they were not named, sent in their reports. And Bocchini read them, had them tacked up, and passed the most important ones on to Mussolini. And in this way, they were sort of keeping a control, because, you know, sometimes the spy would say about some neighbor that they had said something disobliging about fascism, and then he would be visited by the police. So it was very carefully controlled. However, you have to remember that Italy is Italy, and behind all this control, Italians went right on being Italian. That's to say, they went right on being fairly loving of life, family-minded, um, generous-spirited. And it was very telling that when fascism fell, the the speed with which it fell, the, the revulsion against the years, was immediate. I mean, when Mussolini was toppled in the summer of 1943, uh, before he was moved up by Hitler to another government in the north, um, there was an absolute outpouring of, of rage and fury. Pictures and images were destroyed and statues were pulled down and and people were lynched um, who were thought to have anything to do with the fascists. So underneath all this unbelievable sense of control, Italians remained Italians and while everything was going well, which was really up until just after the conquest of Abyssinia, Italy was relatively happy. You know, all the critics were either in prison or abroad. And Italy ran quite well. People were more prosperous than they'd ever been. So the down started really paradoxically when Abyssinia was, was um, invaded and Italy became an empire, which was in theory its greatest moment. But actually, after that, everything started going down. Well, tonight we are talking about Mussolini and Italian fascism. And right now I'm talking to Caroline Moorhead about her fascinating new book on Edda Mussolini, the daughter, the favourite daughter of Benito Mussolini. And there's a brilliant review of the book in The Guardian newspaper, which describes the narrative trajectory as something like a cross between a Martin Scorsese film and a Greek tragedy. And we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be finding out about that Greek tragedy and just how terrible it all became. That's coming up right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at Mussolini and Italian fascism on this, the 100th anniversary of the founding of Italian fascism and, and Mussolini coming to power. Well, uh, I'm delighted to be rejoined by Caroline Moorhead, the author of Edda Mussolini, The Most Dangerous Woman in Europe. And Caroline, let's talk about that Greek tragedy because it all does seem to go horribly wrong uh, for the Mussolinis. And I'm just wondering, why does Chano vote against his father? in law in 1943. I'm surprised that he didn't either A, vote with his father-in-law or else B, just abstain from it. Why take that definitive stand against him? 
Well, it was a bit of a mystery, actually. And on the night of the vote, several of the plotters, the conspirators, said to him, listen, are you sure you want to do this? This is a wise thing to be doing. And he said, no, no, my father would have wanted it. His father was was a very corrupt, but, a, but one of Mussolini's former henchmen. But Chana had this idea that his father was very, would have wanted this to happen because Mussolini was then, by then, by 1943, running the, the country very badly. He was out of tune. Uh, the war was going incredibly badly. It was felt that it would be better if he was replaced. Now, certainly Ciano and some of the other conspirators believed that all that would happen would be he would be asked to step down and he would be replaced by another fascist who would go on running the war. What they didn't take into account was that the king had already decided to depose Mussolini. So when the vote went against Mussolini, nobody quite knew what was going to happen next. Next day, Mussolini went to see the king, as he always did every Sunday. And the king had him arrested and bundled off um, into onto, onto an island in the south of Italy um, under arrest and, and fascism, as it were, fell. Now, up until that moment, um, certainly China believed that that all would be well. So while some of the other plotters and conspirators immediately very sensibly left the country and fled and went into hiding, Chano thought he was safe because he thought since he was married to Mussolini's favorite daughter, it wouldn't be a problem. So he hung about. And when it became increasingly dangerous for them in Rome, people were turning so violently against the, the former fascists. He and Edda and the children were whisked out to to Germany by Hitler. And he went, there was a memorable scene when he and Edda went to see Mussolini. And it was icy cold. But still, Charno thought he was going to be all right. What he didn't know was that Hitler was pressing Mussolini to bring the plotters to justice because he felt it would be a, a sort of signal of, of Mussolini's adherence, if you like, to the Nazis. And there was this trial. And at this trial, there was a pretty foregone conclusion um, that Chano, together with the others, would be found guilty. Now, at this stage, Edda had realized that things were going very badly. And she and Chano, between them, plotted to get him saved by exchanging Chano's diaries for his life. Chano had kept these diaries through the late 30s and into the war, and nobody had seen them, but they were thought to contain some very incriminating material about the Germans, about the, the senior Germans, the Nazi leaders, and the Nazis wanted to get hold of them. So a deal was made, and Edda genuinely thought that the deal had been made. It was going to be, he was going to be suddenly released from jail. Rescued, rescued by some Germans posing as fascists, were going to whisk him out of prison and get him out of Italy. And to this end, she got hold of all the diaries, um, prepared to hand them over to somebody she met late at night on a road. When they didn't turn up, she went off to Switzerland with the diaries, got across the border, asked for asylum, thinking that Charney was safe. In fact, Hitler had come to hear of the plot and forbade it. And Chano was led out and shot, uh, together with the others. 
And she believed it was all right. And she was in hiding in Switzerland 48 hours later when somebody came to tell her that the execution had been carried out. And she accused her father of being Pontius Pilate. She did, and she was right. I mean, Mussolini, to the end of his days, maintained that there was nothing he could have done about it, that nobody told him when the... Asked for pardon that you know he wasn't in his hands, etc. He could have stopped it. Of course, he could have stopped it, and he didn't. And in a way, it was an act of terrible cowardice. Um, so Edith was in this position. She'd lost her father. Um, sorry, she'd lost her husband, and effectively, he had been killed by her father. And many years later, one of her sons wrote a book, and the title was "When Grandfather Had Daddy Shot." Um, and that that's how it was perceived. And she never spoke to her father again. And I wonder, did those diaries survive, uh, the husband's diaries? They did survive. There was a wonderful, it was like, like an adventure story. It was like a detective story. Because in the end, everybody wanted the diaries. The Americans wanted the diaries. The British wanted the diaries. Nobody knew where the diaries were. They knew that she had some of them, some of them in hidden... In a, in a behind an electric box in a hotel near Verona, um, Edda had this this follower, this probably lover, in the form of Emilio Pucci, who would later became the great Italian designer, and he bundled them about and picked up and tortured. It was an amazingly uh, unexpected adventure. All the stuff about the diaries. In the end, she sold them to the Americans and they kept them hidden. They read them and saw that there really wasn't much in them. What they wanted them for is they wanted to get a more insight into the Germans, the senior Germans, and they thought they could use some of it at the Nuremberg. Eventually, the diaries were published. They were serialized uh, in a Chicago paper and they later appeared and published and have been in print ever since. Actually, they don't contain a great deal. You know, there was there was nothing really in them. They're very fascinating about those years and about the personalities of the people, but there were no great revelations. It's an incredible story of love and betrayal and death and revenge. But I, I'm I'm interested in the psychology of Edda during that period between uh, Mussolini being deposed and then his return, and then I suppose that period up until the death of her husband. I'm surprised she wasn't more angry towards her husband. I'm surprised that given all that you've said about their relationship in the 30s, that this is when it gets closer and that they're sending love letters and there's all of this. Like, Why wasn't she furious with her husband for siding against her father? Why, why didn't she wash her hands off him? Well, you're quite right. It is surprising. Um, I think you have to see that by then, by the summer of 1943, um, she too thought her father was not doing well. Uh, she was expecting something to happen. She was expecting that he would be in some way removed. So in a way, she would have she would have supported uh, Chano in this. You're quite right. Why was she not more angry with him? There is no evidence that she was. Um, all you find quite quickly after that are signs of her immense and growing attachment to Charno. I think when she suddenly saw that he was in danger, I think I think it all came home to her. And I think the fact is that she fell in love with him. And I think she thought, help, you know, this man is going to die unless I save him. And 
you have to remember that then everything was so chaotic. Um, Italy was was at war on every side. There were the Allies coming up from the south. There were the Germans occupying. There were the fascists in the north and the government of Salo. Uh, there were the partisans fighting it out. There was Mussolini, first of all, in Germany, then brought back to run Salo. There was chaos. There was mayhem. Um, and I think what she did is she simply, at that point, threw her lot in again with her husband. Do you see her as a villain during this period or do you see her as a victim or is it possible that she's both? I think it's possible she's both. Certainly, I think that's why it made me always think of a Greek tragedy. You know, she's built up, she's built up. um, Everything goes incredibly well, but then the gods turn on her. And at that point, I think, yes, I think she becomes a victim. I I think she does. I think she's caught up in... In, in a situation which is at least a part of our own making, but it has all the elements of tragedy. I mean, because within 18 months, um, she loses everything. She loses her husband, she loses her father, she really loses her country, she loses her status. Um, for a while, she loses her children. Um, so so she is both, I think. I think, I think she is both. You don't get instances during her life when she does really bad things. You know, it's the question about what the Italians said about their Jewish population. Well, there is some evidence that Charney did something to help save the Jews in Italian-run France. Um, There's some evidence for that. Certainly neither she nor Charney were anti-Semitic. She tried to save a few friends. She certainly wasn't part of any of the sort of anti-Semitism that took hold among the senior fascists. Um, so she was not wicked. She was certainly not wicked. Um, self-centered, yes. Uh, hard, yes, certainly. Um, but she she was... Why well, I say she was enigmatic? Because she, there is no sort of very clear pattern to her character. She was all these things. And were there any attempts to prosecute her afterwards? Or It seems to me that she wasn't seen afterwards as a significant enough figure that in a way that helped her uh, to avoid maybe the, the kinds of scrutiny that other figures had. That's absolutely true. She was in Switzerland when the war ended. Um, she'd been there for the two years and she was desperate not to leave because she was terrified about what might happen to her. In fact, she thought she was going to be executed if she was handed over. And the Americans got a deal with the, with the Italians that, that they wouldn't execute her. But even so, she was handed over um, in the summer of 1945. And the Italians immediately arrested her, justifying all her fears. And they sent her to the island of, of Sicily. She, they sent her to Lipari, where a lot of anti-fascists had been imprisoned before the war. And she spent a year there in sort of house under house arrest. Um, At first, she feared she was going to be executed. But after that, she realized she would probably just have to stay there for a while. When she was amnestied, which she was 18 months later, and returned to Rome, she was cut dead by quite a lot of people. But, you know, she went back to her old life. I mean, the extraordinary thing about fascism and post-fascism in Italy, it was like a wave and when the wave had passed, Italy reverted to being Italy. It was as if, in many cases, it, it was as if fascism had never happened. 
And it's extraordinary to think that she was still alive all the way up to 1995. That is such a, it's such a, it's such a part of our memories and our life that uh, here we have Mussolini's favourite daughter, just uh, uh, and who played such a a role in the 30s and up to the fall of of, of Mussolini himself. Yes. Now, what she did after the war, though she herself was not involved in any way in politics, she was certainly a sort of figurehead, if you like, for the nascent neo-fascist parties which developed after the war in Italy and which were quite strong. Um, And people admired her and they went to see her. She herself never said, never made a formal declaration to say that she believed that what had happened under fascism was wrong. She went on saying that she believed in her father uh, until the end. And, you know, it was telling that at her funeral, um, when the funeral was over and the coffin was being carried out, Many people lining the step raised their hands in the fascist salute. Um, but otherwise, she remained a, a figure of curiosity, if you like, but not, not real blame. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Germany, really. Many of the fascists just reverted back to their ordinary pre-fascist lives. And when you look at Italian politics today with its first woman prime minister, uh, Maloney, someone who in her past had expressed support for Mussolini and, and fascism, but as time went on, moved away from that. And they now very much deny that they're a, a fascist party and that they try and renounce it. But it is interesting to see how there are still those resonances and echoes in Italian politics today. Yes, that's certainly true. The parallel, you know, she's the first woman really proper politician to emerge at the very top of Italian politics. And the sort of comparison, if you like, with Edda is sort of in some ways inevitable, but it's a very, very different story. How do you think we should think back and remember Italian fascism and the rise and fall of Benito Mussolini? Is it a warning to us about how things can can go out of control and take these dark turns? Is it a is it a, a warning about not being fooled by the romanticism and the the mythology of some of these movements? Yes, I think it probably is a warning. I, I, I think one has to remember the beginnings of Mussolini. Mussolini was a socialist. And it was only the mayhem that followed the First World War when returning soldiers had been promised a lot of things but weren't given them. In order to make the Italian soldiers go to the war and to fight, they had been told that they would come back to jobs and and some measure of dignity and prosperity because Italy was unbelievably poor. Well, when they came back, there was nothing for them. And there was tremendous unrest verging on civil war and wake of the First World War. And Mussolini, from his socialist past, developed his fascist party. It could have been stopped. Um, He could have been stopped by the king, who did nothing, uh, who was a very weak figure, the king. And any combined political force could have stopped him, but nobody did. And in January 1925, Mussolini proclaimed himself dictator and and the rest is history. There was this moment when he could have been stopped and he wasn't stopped. So in that sense, yes, one should always be alert. 
Okay, well, my thanks to Caroline Moorhead for joining me tonight uh, to conclude our discussion on Mussolini Italian fascism and uh, a fascinating insight into uh, the Mussolini regime uh, in this wonderful new book on the daughter, the favourite daughter of Mussolini, Edda Mussolini, the most dangerous woman in Europe. It's published in hardback by Chatterson Windows, the author, Caroline Moorhead. And Caroline, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Join us next week for more history and debate on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.